0: Eventually this morning could become really long. So I'm telling you now, if you want to run for the door, this is your moment. Because I'm going to start with a review, and review time does not count against my introduction time. And then we'll get to some introduction stuff, and eventually we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If you want to turn there, go ahead But it'll be a while until we get there. Last week I said to all of you, thus begins the review, last week I said to you all that part of the problem that we have in deciphering what Paul has written here in 1 Corinthians is that we don't have the original letter written by Chloe to Paul where she's telling Paul what the problems are in the Corinthian church. If we had those specific questions, it would be easier to understand why Paul said the things he said, why he wrote the things he wrote, because we would understand his response because of the questions. Well, we don't have those questions, and so we have to do a certain amount of detective work. It's called exegesis. We have to dig into the word and understand it within its context And within its larger theology and its place within the Bible. But then we have to dig down into the details in order to kind of understand or at very least uh, speculate on what those questions must have been. Now, Paul is going to return to the matter of the Lord's Supper here at GCA. One of the distinctives of GCA that I've had to defend more than once over the last 15 years, is that we only take the Lord's Supper once a year. And it is because of passages like this. And this morning, we're going to talk about some of that, which for some of you will be review. But for some of you, that will be new information. And what I don't want us to do is get so lost in the details that we forget that this is a letter There were no chapter divisions. There were no verse divisions. When this letter was written to the church at Corinth, the presiding elder would stand up and read the letter from beginning to end, and this was Paul's response to what was written to Paul. So we're taking it kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and unfortunately some people get the idea that chapter 11 has nothing to do with chapter 5. But knowing that Paul was writing a letter, what we call chapter 5, those early portions of the letter, were preparing us for what we're going to get to now in chapter 11. Paul addressed the question of the Passover repeatedly in this letter. And because he addressed it repeatedly, we have to assume that one of the questions must have had something to do with the Passover, Because Paul brings it up so repeatedly. And then Paul ties the Passover directly to the Lord's Supper. He doesn't do that as an invention. He's doing that because it's a historic fact. Okay, so let's talk about Passover for a few minutes. The last Wednesday that we were here together, we talked about Josiah finding a copy of the book of the law And how Josiah reinstituted, of all things, the Passover. Of all the feasts that God gave to the Israelites and said three times a year, every man that can travel must come to Jerusalem and keep my feasts. The one feast that Josiah reinstituted was Passover. Because Passover was very foundational to all Jewish religion. Passover goes all the way back to the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. On that night when the death angel swept through Egypt, when the death angel did not kill the firstborn of the Israelites, but did kill the firstborn of the Egyptians, if that death angel saw the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the doorpost and on the lentil, then the angel would pass over that house. And that's where the name Passover originates. And then that night, the Israelites had to leave Egypt and had to leave in such a hurry that even as they ate the meal that night, they had to eat it with their sandals on, fully clothed, staff in hand. So prepared to walk, they had to have their staff in hand as they ate the lamb, as they ate the Passover meal, as it became known. They finished that meal, and then the death angel, as he was passing over, and people were dying, and people were wailing and crying, screaming in the streets, all of this this bloodshed and, and this deliverance going on in that night. During that night, they left Egypt, and they left in such a hurry that the bread didn't even have time to rise, and so the bread they had to eat was bread that wasn't leavened unleavened bread so God told Israel that they had to memorialize that night that moment in time that deliverance had to be memorialized by Israel in perpetuity that they just had to continue doing it now over the course of God's dealings with Israel he eventually gave them other feasts there were four in the spring there were three in the fall Now the four spring feasts are fulfilled in Christ's ministry on earth. Paul lays it out for us. It's clear that he fulfilled the first four. Passover, the first of them, took place on Nisan 14th. As you may recall, the Jewish calendar was built on a lunar calendar. It wasn't a solar calendar like our Gregorian calendar. The lunar calendar necessitated that the beginning of the month was determined by the turning of the new moon. As soon as the leaders in Israel saw the first sliver of light, the first beginning of a new moon, that was the beginning of a new month. As a consequence, in the month of Nisan, if it began at the sliver of the new moon, on the 14th was a full moon. And that month, Nisan 14th, was designated every year as Passover. Now, it didn't matter what day of the week Passover fell on, it always fell on the 14th. And that day was also known as the day of preparation because the Feast of Unleavened Bread was going to start on the 15th. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was a week-long feast, and it started on the 15th, whatever day of the week that was. And the Feast of Unleavened Bread required that all of the Israelites take all of the leaven out of the camp, out of their house, out of the camp, completely gone. Leaven is therefore a type of sin, and so the Feast of Unleavened Bread is the removal of sin from the camp of Israel. So that's the 14th and then the 15th. Now in that week-long Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's going to be a Sunday somewhere. When you get seven days together, Sunday is somewhere in there. Whatever calendar date that Sunday fell on, that first day of the week, that was first fruits. So first fruits occurred during the week long unleavened bread. And then from first fruits, the Israelites would count seven Sabbaths, in other words, seven weeks which is 49 days. And on the first day of the week after that seven, they would celebrate the Feast of Weeks known as Pentecost. Penta, you hear the 50 right in it. Okay, those are the four spring feasts. Paul tells us that Christ was the fulfillment of the Feast of Firstfruits. He is the firstfruits of the resurrection. The promise of the resurrection particularly to Israel and then also to the Gentiles who believe in Christ is foreshadowed in first fruits in the first fruits feast you would bring God the first of all your increase whether that was grain or grapes or wine or cattle or you would bring God the first fruit of everything he had increased you with so then Paul says Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. Okay, that makes it even more interesting because if you brought God the first fruits of your increase, of your crop, then God would bless your whole year of crops. So everything else of your grain and of your grapes and of your cattle and of your wheat, everything else for the rest of the year was blessed because God Receive the first fruits. If Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, that guarantees that the whole rest of the resurrection is not only guaranteed to happen, but also blessed the same way that Christ was blessed. Okay, so that's a guarantee of the resurrection. Now remember that the Israelites, ever since Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones, have always had the promise of resurrection. God identified the valley of dry bones. He interpreted it for us. We don't have to interpret it. God interpreted it. And God's interpretation of it was, this is the whole house of Israel, which I will raise up on the last day. So there's your promise of resurrection. Christ is the first fruit of the resurrection. Therefore, Israel has the guarantee that the whole resurrection is going to happen. And because the first fruit is holy, the whole lump is holy. So therefore, God has redeemed his people. Then, of course, Gentiles are added via the new covenant To that promise. Okay, that's the fulfillment of first fruits. We know the fulfillment of Pentecost. We know that Christ told the disciples that they were to stay in Jerusalem until they were endued with power from on high. That happened. At the Feast of Weeks, right on Pentecost, Peter preached the message, 3,000 were saved. That's the fulfillment of Pentecost. Okay, so then if those are fulfilled that well and that perfectly in Pauline thinking, if Firstfruits and, and Pentecost are fulfilled so perfectly and right on time, what is the fulfillment of Passover and Unleavened Bread? Well, that gets me to my point. I told you this is going to be a long review for some of you. And introduction for others okay so what is the fulfillment well if you look at 1st Corinthians chapter 5 I mentioned that earlier if you go back just a little bit to 1st Corinthians 5 you'll see Paul writing starting at chapter 6 saying your boasting is not good do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump okay so if there's any sin in the camp of Israel then it's going to affect the whole camp of Israel, a little leaven, leavens the whole lump. So then he says, Christ having fully, sufficiently paid our sin debt, Christ having fully, sufficiently gotten rid of sin so that sin is no longer the issue, Christ having removed the leaven from the lump, he can now say, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump (coughs) just as you are, in fact, unleavened. So now he's telling the folks in Corinth you are unleavened because Christ is your unleavened bread. He has removed sin from you, and therefore you are now unleavened. For Christ, look at the next word, our Passover also has been sacrificed. Okay, now we're getting to the fulfillment of the sacrificial lamb, We understand that the Passover lamb had to die on the Passover. One of the things that you read about in the Gospels is that the Jewish leaders were determined not to kill Christ on Passover because they understood that that would fulfill the typology and that it would cause an uprising in the streets. So they agreed that no matter what we do with him, the one thing he cannot do is die on Passover. But because he was determined to die on Passover since before the foundation of the world, since he is called the lamb slain since the foundation of the world. Because he had to typify 1,400 years of Passover lambs, he had to die on Passover. So what day did he die? Passover. Passover. He got together with his disciples, and he said, with great longing, I have longed to keep this Passover with you. So we know that he was with his apostles on the night that he was betrayed. Paul's going to bring that up again. And then we know that he died on Passover, therefore he is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb. So Paul, having pointed out that Christ is our Passover, and he has also been sacrificed, you would think that the next thing Paul would say is, therefore the feast and what it typifies is fulfilled in Christ, don't worry anymore about the feast. The feast is over, except that God said that Israel would do it in perpetuity, constantly, continually, keep it up. When Jesus held the Lord's Supper, for lack of a better verb, when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he didn't say, now this is satisfied, so you guys don't ever have to do this again. Instead, what he said is, when you do this, keep doing it, you're told to do it. But when you do it, don't think about Egypt anymore. Think about me. Instead of thinking about the deliverance from Egypt, think about the deliverance from sin. Think about my sacrifice. And again, Paul's going to pick that up in 1 Corinthians 11 and say that as often as you do it, you show the Lord's death. He didn't say you show the deliverance from Egypt. Instead, you show the Lord's death. But look at verse 8 of chapter 5. The next phrase, instead of forget about the feast now, the next phrase is let us therefore keep the feast. Let us therefore continue to celebrate the feast. Now we know what feast he's talking about because he's just made the reference to unleavened bread and Christ our Passover. So Christ is our Passover. He at the Lord's Supper picked up the unleavened bread. Because at Passover you had to eat the unleavened bread. He picks up the unleavened bread and says, this is my body. And then there was a series of cups of wine that they would drink during the Passover meal, during the Seder. And the last one after supper was known as the cup of blessing. That's a very specific terminology that any thoroughgoing Jew would know instantly what cup that is. That's not a random cup. That is the Passover cup. That's the cup that Jesus picked up and said, this is my blood. So there's blessing in the blood of Christ, and there is the death of Christ symbolized in the breaking of his body, the unleavened bread. All of this that I'm telling you right now, Paul knows. Uh, Any thoroughgoing Jew knows all of this. And so what are they going to do about Passover? Are they going to forget about it, considering that it is the highest of the feasts, the, the most historically memorable of the feasts, the most significant in its symbolism of all the feasts. Well, like Josiah, who reestablished the Passover, the church also did not just do away with Passover. It continued keeping Passover, but pointing to Christ instead of pointing to Egypt. So now Paul continues his letter. That was chapter 5. Go forward a little bit. Go to chapter 10. Paul is continuing writing his letter and responding to questions. And I believe that one of these questions had something to do with the Passover feast and the necessity and the particularity of the Lord's Supper. Start at verse 15 of chapter 10. He says, I speak to you as wise men you judge what I say, is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Okay, what's he talking about there? He's not just talking about any cup. He's talking about the cup of blessing that is part of the Passover meal. So he is returned again to the subject of Passover. And this cup of blessing is the blood of Christ. Well, that's what Jesus said at the Last Supper. This is my blood And this is the blood of the new covenant. Then he says, is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? It's exactly what Christ said at the Last Supper. This is my body given for you, broken for you. Look at verse 21. He then says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. Which would that be? The cup of blessing, the one that is established by christ as being symbolic of his blood you cannot drink the cup of the lord and the cup of demons and you cannot partake of the table of the lord and the table of demons what's the table of the lord that has to be the last supper that has to be the passover table that has to be the table on which the unleavened bread was sitting when christ said this is my body and then said when you do it now remember me So Paul is returning to this subject. That's all I'm trying to prove here in my preamble. I'm still preambling, just so you understand. This is Paul returning time and time again to the subject of Passover and its relationship to the Lord's Supper. Chapter 11. Now Paul is going to address the question of the Last Supper. Now as I said a moment ago, Here at GCA, we observe the Lord's Supper annually, once a year. We do it as close to Passover as we can get for a Sunday morning. Typically, that is Easter morning, although some years, like last year, Easter occurred a month before Passover. And so we, here at GCA... Didn't have communion on Easter Sunday. We waited until the Sunday closest to Passover, which was two days later. Because I am convinced that Paul's combining of the Passover and the Lord's Supper is purposeful. People say, and people write to me and they ask, and they say, uh, Paul did not designate how often you should keep the Lord's Supper. So therefore, we do it weekly, or we do it monthly, or we do it bi-weekly, or we do it quarterly, or we do it twice a year, or we do it... I think the reason that Paul did not designate how often to do it is because it was obvious. It's right in the text. If you know your Old Testament history, if you understand the significance of Passover... If you understand the 1,400 years in perpetuity of keeping the Passover as a memory of their deliverance from Egypt, and then you recognize Christ saying, now when you do it, remember me, then you see the the intimate connection between Passover and the Lord's Supper. I think that is so obvious that Paul felt no reason to say how often to do it. In fact, I would argue he did say how often to do it. You do it every Passover. You do it every time that that feast comes around. Like Paul said, keep the feast. Keep doing it. But now remember Christ in the doing. Now, part of the confusion comes from the fact that the early church used to meet together on a regular basis and they would share a meal together. And that sharing of a meal together is referred to, especially in the King James, as breaking bread. And so the folks who want to defend a weekly or biweekly or monthly or quarterly, who want to defend the more frequent Lord's Supper, argue that the breaking bread that we read about in the book of Acts is actually a reference to the Lord's Supper. But historically, that doesn't wash. Number one in the Bible, yes, there is a reference to breaking bread, but it simply means having a meal. It simply means eating. There is a place here in Smyrna. I don't know if it still exists. Does it still exist? There's a restaurant up the road called Breaking Bread, right? Because they understand that to break bread means to eat. Have you ever used that phrase? Have you ever said to somebody, let's get together and break bread? I mean, that's what we mean by it. Well, that's the same way the Bible uses it. For instance, Acts 2, 41 and 42 says, so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. This is Pentecost. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, the folks who advocate for a more frequent communion point at that verse and say, see, they got together on a regular basis and broke bread, which means that they broke unleavened bread, which there's no reason for them to do. You would only do that during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But they say the breaking bread is a, re- a reference to communion. But textually, that doesn't work because Acts 20, verse 7 says, upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech until midnight. Man, and you think my sermons are long. (laughs) Paul preached for such a long time that a guy who was sitting listening fell asleep and fell down dead. Okay? (laughs) That's a long sermon. So far... I say boldly, so far, nobody has died during one of my
1: sermons.
0: (laughs) And I feel good about this. Anyway. So there were lights on in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. And there sat in the window a certain young man named Eutychus, being fallen into a deep sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, Eutychus sunk down to sleep. And he fell down from the third loft. And he was taken up dead. And Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him said trouble not yourselves for his life is in him when he therefore was come up again he came back from the dead listen to this phrase and when he had therefore come up again and had broken bread and had eaten and taken a long while even till the break of day he then departed so clearly contextually He's saying, give some food to the dead guy. If he's alive again, get him to sit up and eat, break bread. So if breaking bread has the indication of eating food, then I don't believe that he's talking about taking the Lord's Supper because the Lord's Supper is something that is distinct and unique to the Passover. Now, where did the confusion come from? I'm going to answer that question this morning. Have any of you ever heard of the Didache? Do you know what that is? This is an early document. It's not from the Bible. It is an early document that is a description of the activity of the church. We don't know why it was written. We only know that historically it's very early. It's from the first century AD. We don't know if it was written for government officials to read to uh, justify why the church got together, what they were doing when they got together. We do know that it's a Jewish writer, but we don't know if maybe he was writing to a Gentile church, saying this is how the church operates. We don't really know. But it is a good insight into the early church activity. Now, that word didache simply means the teaching. You've heard me before use the word didactic. That comes from the Greek word didaskalos. So the didache just means the teaching. This is the teaching of the church. This is what the church does. Now, these, the early church got together, as we read in the book of Acts, they got together on a very regular basis. And they would share food with one another, and they would feast with one another on a regular basis. Those meetings became known as love feasts or agape feasts but they were distinctly different from the communion feast, the Lord's Supper feast. And because they used bread and wine, which, by the way, are staples of food in the Middle East, and so because they used bread and wine and because they used the bread and wine as a symbol of their body, their group as a church, these ideas of the Lord's Supper and the regular love feast became combined and now people go back and look at these two and say well the early church must have been taking the communion every time they got together and they used that to justify the repetitious communion but think about it logically for just a moment i'm going to read some of the DDK to you but think about it logically if we celebrated april's birthday every week Like every week, it's April's birthday, yay. After a while, we're all as a group going to get real sick of April. (laughs) (laughs) But more importantly, what's really going to happen to us is we're not going to care about her birthday. Because after a while, oh, that's right, it's April's birthday again. And so, oh, eat a slice of cake or eat a cupcake or don't at all or ignore it or whatever. Oh, April, it's your birthday again? Oh, great, thanks. Because it's not special anymore because a birthday is an annual memorial of the day that you were born. That's the same thing with the Passover. It was an annual memorial to the deliverance, which is why God established it on Nisan 14th every year. And when the New Testament and the New Covenant came around, it did not change the rules of Passover. It was still an annual memorial, and Paul seems to tie the Lord's Supper to that feast, as we just saw. But now let's read what the Didache says, because the Didache says something distinctly different that cannot be confused with the Lord's Supper. Do you understand my argument so far? Have I bored anybody to tears yet? No, because I'm still introducing. I have moved past the review, and I'm into the introductory phases right now. And none of this counts against my time. Really? No one's arguing with that? <laughs> All right, I'm going to read from the DDK. This is the Roberts Donaldson English Translation, Chapter 9, the Eucharist, which is the Thanksgiving, the love feast. Now, concerning the Eucharist. Give thanks this way, first, concerning the cup, and this is what you're supposed to say about it. Now listen, because he doesn't say, this is my blood, and he doesn't say this symbolizes or memorializes the death of Christ. This is what you do with the cup. You say, we thank thee, our Father, for the holy vine of David thy servant, which you madest known to us through Jesus, thy servant, to thee be glory forever. And concerning the bread, there's nothing in there about the sacrifice of Christ. There's nothing in there about the establishment of the new covenant. There's nothing about the blood of Christ spilling and in sacrifice. Instead, when you shared the cup, it was a cup of thanksgiving. Thank God that he has joined us together. Now concerning the bread, say this. Say, we thank thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus your servant, to thee be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together to become one so let thy church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom, for thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Does that sound like the Lord's Supper? It sounds nothing like the Lord's Supper. So what I'm driving at is the love feast, the regular get-together break-bread love feast is distinctly different from the Lord's Supper. In a minute, Paul's going to give us the language of the Lord's Supper. And it's very different from what the Didache says. The early church got together to eat and drink and give thanks together, but they were not keeping the Lord's Supper when they did that. The Didache continues, but let no one eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they have been baptized into the name of the Lord For concerning this also, the Lord has said, give not that which is holy to dogs. Chapter 10 is prayer after eating together. But after you are filled, give thanks this way. So this is what you say at the end of your eating together. When you've gathered together and you're eating, are you going to mention The deliverance of Christ, our deliverance from sin, the the blood that spilled, the inception of the new covenant. Are you going to mention any of that like you would at the Lord's Supper? No, you don't say any of that. Here's what you say. After you're filled, give thanks this way. We thank thee, Holy Father, for thy holy name, which you did cause to tabernacle in our hearts and for the knowledge and the faith and immortality, which you made known to us through Jesus thy servant, to thee be the glory forever. Thou mighty master did create all things for thy namesake. You gave food and drink to men for enjoyment that they might give thanks to thee. But to us you did freely give spiritual food and drink and life eternal through thy servant. Before all things we thank thee that you are mighty And to thee be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, thy church to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in thy love and gather it from the four winds, sanctified for thy kingdom, which thou hast prepared for it. For thine is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the son of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If he is not so, let him repent. Maranatha, come soon. Amen. Does any of that sound like the Lord's Supper? No, it's a very good prayer. It's a prayer of thanksgiving to God, but none of it is the Lord's Supper. So when the early church gathered together, this is what they did on a regular basis. It was a thanksgiving meal, but it was not a meal for particularly the Lord's Supper. So now Paul is going to address in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, now he's going to address when they assemble, when they get together as a church to take the Lord's Supper, what are they doing wrong? They're doing it so wrong that Paul's going to say, God has killed some of you. God has made some of you sick because you've taken it so wrong. Okay, now that makes the Lord's Supper particularly unique because there's only two places in the New Testament where we ever read of God directly killing somebody. We see it in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, there's only two places. Taking the Lord's Supper wrong, that's how important this is. That memorial, that remembrance, that Passover meal is so important to God that he's made people sick and killed them over it. And the other one is when Ananias and Sapphira decide to lie about their giving because they sold some land and brought in the money from the land and held back a little bit of it and then said, this is all the money from the land, and they lied. And Peter said, why did you lie to the Holy Spirit? The land was yours. The money was yours. It was all in your hand. Why did you feel it necessary to lie about it? And it was the lie about their giving that caused God to kill them. Those are the only two places in the New Testament where God intervenes in the early church and kills people for doing it wrong. That means that the Lord's Supper, that this event is so important in God's economy, on God's calendar, it's so important that he's willing to kill people rather than have them do it wrong you get that now by the way as we continue to look through this you're going to see that actually god killing and making these people sick was an act of mercy because these people did belong to god they were the church they were the body of christ but they were still so ignorant and so arrogant and so rebellious that God, rather than allowing them to continue in their rebellion, stopped their rebellion by killing them so that he would not judge them when he judged the whole world. So the killing and the sickness were actually a blessing in the midst of rebellion. Fascinating again. Okay, I've got about 20 minutes left, so I guess we should get to the text. (laughs) Thus ends the introduction. We are in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We are starting in verse 17. In the early part of chapter 11, Paul praised the Corinthians for following after his instruction and keeping the traditions. But starting at verse 17, he says, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. Now, in a moment, he's going to refer to the kind of coming together he's talking about. It's when they come together as a church to keep the feast, because part of the rule of the feast was anybody that could travel had to come to Jerusalem to keep the feast. In a city like Corinth, a great metropolitan city, there were gatherings of believers who got together on a regular basis and attended to the apostles' teaching and to breaking bread. We just read that. But at the feast, they were to come together as an assembly, as an ecclesia, everybody in the city getting together. Now, remember, 2,000 years ago, you didn't have Methodists and Catholics and Baptists and all the different denominations. There was just the Church of Jesus Christ. And what they believed was the doctrine that Paul put forward and that was what unified them against the world was the sound doctrine taught by Paul now after 2,000 years the idea of the whole church in Smyrna getting together seems like an impossibility because the Episcopals aren't going to agree with the Catholics who aren't going to agree with the Baptists who are going to disagree with the Methodists Who, it's impossible now to think of the unified church But that's what Paul was talking about. When you come together as an assembly to keep this feast, you're doing it wrong. That's his argument. But in giving you this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worst. For in the first place, when you come together as an assembly, as an ecclesia, as the church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part, I believe it. Okay, now what should Paul's answer be to the divisions within the church? There are people within the church arguing with other people within the church, and you would think that Paul's attitude would be, Stop it! Just quit it! Stop disagreeing! It's not at all what Paul says. If God is truly sovereign... And if Christ is specifically putting people into his church, person by person, then these disagreements, which by the way, it's the word schismata, it's where we get schism, it's where we get separation from one another. So he's now going to say that these divisions, these schisms, have to happen within the church, so that the ones who really know what they're talking about are made obvious. That doesn't make sense to me. I think the answer would be, well then, take the schismatics and put them out. And those of you who agree, get together and agree. But just quit fighting. Paul says in verse 19, For there must also be factions among you, in order that those who are approved may become evident among you. So this schisma, I think I said schismata earlier, this, this Greek schisma idea, Paul says, is a necessity within the church so that it'll separate the people who know what they're talking about and believe in the faith and are convinced of what God has said, who are following the Pauline teaching, who are following the customs and traditions of the church, those people will become more obvious by the fact that there are those who separate themselves from it and who don't believe it or argue with it or have difficulty with it so that the ones who are approved can be made more obvious. I think that's brilliant. Verse 20, therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Let's talk about that phrase for a minute because there are some, you can find them everywhere on the internet, there are some who say you should not eat the Lord's Supper at all within the church, that the Lord's Supper should occur in a home somewhere And it shouldn't be when you gather together as a church, because Paul has just said, when you gather together as a church, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, which seems obvious enough. But what Paul is really saying, and you'll get it as he continues his argument, he's saying when you gather together to keep the feast, you're doing it so badly that you're not eating the Lord's Supper, you're eating your own Supper. If you're gathering together to eat the Lord's Supper, then the concentration should be on the Lord, not on how badly you can hurt each other. Because again, remember, there are schisms, there are schisms, there are difficulties, disagreements between each other. But when you come together to eat the Lord's Supper, you should remember that you are one body in Christ and you're all drinking of the same bread You're all drinking of the same bread. That is some thin bread right there. (laughs) That you're all drinking of the same wine. You're all eating the same bread. You're all the body of Christ. Therefore, there shouldn't be divisions among you. But therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper because in your eating, each one of you takes his own supper first. And then one is hungry and another is drunk. And so the rich folks would come to the feast and have plenty of food and drink, and they would eat plenty, and they'd drink plenty, and they'd be drunk. And then there were people among them who had nothing. And rather than share what they had, the rich were just satiating their own flesh and leaving their brother, hanging him out to dry, giving him nothing, not sharing at all in what is meant to be a communal moment. And so, that is the way that they were not eating the Lord's Supper. They were eating their own supper. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. And then Paul's question, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Well, the answer, obviously, is yes. They all have homes. So, if you're hungry, then don't come to the Lord's Supper with your feast and your hunger. Eat at home. And then when you come to the Lord's Supper... Be in communion with the body and don't be distracted by the hunger. What? Do you not have homes in which to eat and drink? Or this is the opposite. If you're eating and drinking and being drunk, then you despise the assembly of God. You despise the church of God and you shame those who have nothing. If you're busy shaming those who have nothing, While you're gorging yourself, Paul says, that is shaming the very body. That is shaming the people who Christ died for. That's shaming the people who you're going to share eternity with. And yet you're willing to shame them because you despise them. You despise the church of God. So do you shame them that have nothing? What shall I say to you? Should I praise you? In this I will not praise you. So okay, now we've got the context. They're doing the Lord's Supper and they're doing it so wrongly that Paul has to identify the proper way to do it. He starts that in verse 23 and says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the night in which he was betrayed what night is the night when jesus was betrayed it's passover night that couldn't be any clearer jesus said it. it is in all four gospels jesus took the time to say i am eating this passover with you so we know what night that was and in the night on which he was betrayed which is passover night now Again, all the Jews know exactly what that means. They know what was on the table. They know what the Seder looked like. They know what the cup of blessing is. They know what the unleavened bread is about. They know what the bitter herbs are for, to remind them of their captivity in Egypt. They know everything that makes up the Passover feast. And so Paul said, on that night, when the Lord Jesus was betrayed that night, He took bread. What bread is that? It has to be the unleavened bread. This is the first day of unleavened bread. This is Passover. It's taken with unleavened bread. Okay, how many times a year do the Jews require unleavened bread? Once. Once a year at Passover. Does this seem obvious yet? Because to me it just leaps off the page and seems so very obvious. But... On the night on which he was betrayed, he took bread. That had to be unleavened bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. For 1,400 years, every time they've taken the Passover, they've remembered one thing, the deliverance out of Egypt. The death angel passing by their houses. The death angel passing over the houses that had blood on it. And now Christ is telling them, all of that typifies me. For 1400 years you've been doing this, but it all speaks of me. I'm the Passover lamb. I'm the unleavened bread. I'm the sacrifice that is going to deliver you from your sin. I'm the one that's going to keep the death angel away from you. If God looks on you in judgment and sees the blood of Christ covering you the same way that the blood of the Passover lamb covered the households of the Jews. If God sees that, then his judgment passes over you. So every time you do it now, notice he didn't say, stop doing it. I'm the fulfillment of it now. No, instead he said, every time you do it, rather than think of Egypt, think of me. This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper. Okay, which cup in the Seder is the after supper cup? cup of blessing. The cup of blessing. He's already mentioned it. It's already part of this letter. It's coming up repeatedly. And he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Okay, think about what happened at Mount Sinai. Moses takes the children of Israel out of Egypt, takes them into the wilderness. At Mount Sinai, they establish a covenant with God. That covenant is based in sacrifices, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of doves. And so the covenant is established with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no covenant. Now Christ has said, you know that new covenant that's been promised to you from Jeremiah? Remember that new covenant where God said, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then God specifically said, not like the covenant that I made with them when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. Okay, not that covenant, which God says, which they broke. Okay, not that covenant but a new covenant, a qualitatively new covenant, a covenant that has to be ratified with blood. And so Christ would say, this cup is my blood of the new covenant. So when Christ died, the new covenant was instituted, a covenant that I say again, just as loudly and clearly as I can, a covenant that was established with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. For all the folks who say, well, God's done with Israel. The new covenant in Christ's blood was established with them, which, by the way, is why when the disciples are together with Jesus, after he has talked to them for 40 days about the kingdom, when he's about to leave, they say, will you at this time return the kingdom to Israel? You can do that now. Nothing about what he taught changed their minds about the place that Israel has in God's economy. Later, when the two apostles are walking on the Emmaus road and Jesus joins them and Jesus says, what are you discussing? They talk about the crucifixion of Christ and they very specifically say, we thought he was going to be the redeemer of Israel. I mean, that's their expectation, They know who he is. After three and a half years of being with him, he is the deliverer of Israel. And so this is all very important Israel language. And this is why the early church, which is predominantly Jewish, still maintains the history and traditions that they've been keeping for 1,400 years. Jesus didn't say stop doing it. He just said change the focus. The focus of it now isn't Egypt. It's me. And just like the old covenant was established with blood, the new covenant is established with blood. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. That's the phrase that has caused so much difficulty for so many people because they see the word often. Now, if I say to April, because I picked on her a moment ago about her birthday every week, if I say to April... As often as you have a birthday, have cake. How often did I just tell her to have cake? Once a year. Once a year. As often as you have a birthday. It's the same thing Paul just said. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup. What cup is that? The cup of blessing that's part of the Passover meal. As often as you eat this bread, the unleavened bread, the sign of the time of year. And as often as you do it, which is every year, that's how often, and as often as you do it, think of me. As often as you do it, remember me. As often as you do it, you show the Lord's death till he comes. Not you show the deliverance from Egypt, but now as often as you do it, which means continue doing it, but now as often as you do it, remember the Lord's death. For as often as you eat this bread... And as often as you drink this cup, that's a yearly thing, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats that bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of Christ. Okay, let's talk about that for a moment. Because I grew up in the Lutheran church, and we used to take communion every month. And I was an acolyte. I had the robes, I knew which candles to light, and there were special candles that we lit on Communion Sunday. The last Sunday of every month was Communion Sunday. And so that became the center, because Lutheranism was in so many ways just Catholic light. And the center of our church, if you sat in our church and you looked at the front, the center of the church was the altar because that's where the communion took place. Again, the the Lutherans would say that they're not re-sacrificing Christ the way the Catholics did, but they still put the altar front and center where the re-sacrifice of Christ goes on, and the pulpit was way over on the side. You had to actually turn your head to see the preacher for those 15 minutes that he was teaching, and he didn't teach out of the Bible. He usually taught about cleaning out the barn. I never forgot that sermon. Um, So... The communion became the center of our monthly get together, the, the communion service. And here Paul has said if you eat the bread or drink the cup, the King James will say unworthily. Okay, that's an adverb. It modifies the action, it is not an adjective, it does not modify the actor. I say this every year when we take communion. I say, the book says unworthily. If you think the book says, test yourself, try yourself, examine yourself to see whether you're worthy, I'll save you the trouble. You're not. Nobody's worthy of the body and blood of Christ. That worthiness does not exist. Nor does Paul say, test yourself to see if you're worthy. He says, test yourself to see whether the way you're partaking is in a worthy manner, whether you're doing it worthily. And he's just told us what the unworthy manner is. One has food, another one does not have food. Some are drunk, some are satiated, some are, okay, that's taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. It has nothing to do with you judging your own self-value. It has nothing to do with you trying to decide whether you're a holy enough person to participate in the communion. It's how you do it. Do it reverently. Do it waiting on one another. Do it caring for the people that you're united with because it does speak of us as the body of Christ. So don't be schismatic. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. So you examine yourself to find out whether you're doing it properly, whether you're doing it in a worthy manner. You do not examine yourself. This is my old Lutheranism ringing away in my head, keeping me awake at night and torturing my memory. Because our pastor used to thunder down from the front of the church, saying, let a man examine himself, and don't you drink this bread. Don't you drink this bread. I'm still talking about that thin bread. And don't you drink this wine, and don't you eat this bread unworthy. Because if you do, you're drinking damnation to yourself. And oh, I was scared to death. I was 13 and had taken two years of catechism classes in order to take my first communion. Very big event. First communion. I was scared to death because I was walking up to the front. By the way, the first communion kids, the ones who had just graduated from catechism class, had to wear robes when they took the communion. It was all a very holy affair. And so I've got my robe on, and I'm moving toward the front of the line, and toward the front, and toward the front. And by the time I got there, I was thinking, I don't want to do this, because I knew for a fact at 13 years old that I wasn't any good. I knew that I was not worthy, and I hoped that God graded on a curve, (laughs) and that he wouldn't recognize how unworthy I was. Maybe if I look good today. Maybe if I comb my hair today and put on my white robe, maybe then I'll look good enough to take the communion. Maybe now. It was so scary. So let me tell you now, all you kids, you're not worthy. There, that's done. But Christ sacrificed himself by grace. He sacrificed himself for you because he knew that's what you most needed. And he loved you enough to do what you most needed despite you and now you can give up on the worthy thing and when you come to the communion table you can come with joy and you can come knowing that you've been accepted by the God who poured out his blood and broke his body for you You see the difference I wish that I had been raised with the, the joy of the Lord but I was raised with the terror of the Lord anyway Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, says the NASB, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Okay, now it starts to get heavy. There's a couple of words that Paul uses in this passage. There's the word crema, which is a decision against a crime. There's diacrino, which means to separate or to discern. There's also crino, which is to both try and condemn and punish. And then there's the word with the intensifier on the front, katacrino, which means to be condemned or damned along with the world. And you need to know those distinctions. In the Bible, all you're going to read is the word judged and the word damned. But Paul is actually using variations of that word in order to say, as I said an hour ago, in order to say that God will put temporary or temporal punishments on you like sickness or death in order to keep you from being condemned, damned with the whole world. So it's actually an act of grace, an act of mercy for God to keep you from your own rebellious ways. By the way, that's a really sovereign God. The writer of the book of Hebrews says, Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And he's not talking about a restaurant in L.A. He's not saying he's going to take you to chastens. Whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And the next verse is even more scary. It says and scourges every son he receives okay i want the lord to receive me as a son but the process means he's going to correct me and he's going to scourge me and then the writer of hebrews is honest enough to say we all had fathers who used to scourge us who used to correct us and they did it for their own decision their own choice their own Make the the home life peaceful. But God does it for our spiritual good. The writer of Hebrews says, no chastening is pleasant for the moment, but the end result of it is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Okay, so that idea of God chastening his own people comes into play here because Paul's going to say there are some people who are doing it so wrong and so rebelliously that God is chastening them in order to keep them from rebelling against himself. That's power. That's sovereignty. Is it getting hot in here? Or is it just me? I'm good. Okay, then I'm working up a sweat. <laughs> Verse 29 He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now, that's the word crema, that's a decision against a crime. So what he's doing is, if he eats or drinks, he's begging God to chasten him. He's begging God to correct him. He's begging God to make a decision against him. So he eats or drinks this crema to himself, if he does not diacrino, which is to judge, to separate, to discern. If he doesn't judge the body correctly, the body of Christ that is the church, that is the assembly, if he fails to judge that correctly and treat people right and not gorge himself and get drunk and leave the, the people who have nothing with nothing, if they don't judge the whole body correctly, then they're eating and drinking this judgment from God to themselves. Verse 30, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep or are dead. Paul just said, God has seen to it that some of you are too sick to come. He's kept you away from this. He's kept you away from the cup and the bread. And he's even killed you because you do belong to him because he's keeping you from your rebellious self so that his worship is done correctly that's absolute sovereignty for this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep now if there are a number of you right now feeling a little sleepy slap yourself and wake up I'm nearly done I really am but I don't want to uh, see the judgment of God on you so don't sleep But if we judged, again, diacrino, same word, if we discerned ourselves rightly, we will not be crino, we will not be tried and punished. Verse 32, but when we are judged, crino, punished, we are disciplined. It's the word padeo. It's the word that is the root word of like uh, pedagogy. Training up a child teaching a child so when we are temporally judged by God we're trained up like children in the way we should go isn't this great isn't this brilliant that God is saying when you do it so wrongly that you're rebelling against me I will train you like an ignorant child and I will do it through judging you And putting temporal punishments on you in order to stop your rebellion for this reason. When you are judged, you are disciplined, trained up like a child. You are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be, now he yanks out the word katakrino. Now he's saying ultimate judgment. Condemnation. Lake of fire. So the reason that God judges us temporally is so that he won't judge us eternally. God is keeping us from his own eternal judgment by judging us temporally. And that is an act of grace. And I find that, again, fascinating. So then, my brethren, verse 33, so then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, then him eat at home, so that you will not come together for crema, for that temporal judgment. And then, as if Paul hasn't said enough already about the topic, he finishes by saying, and the remaining stuff I'll clear up when I get there. (laughs) The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. So apparently they were doing so many things so very, very wrongly that Paul not only had to write to them in detail about it, and Paul had to warn them that they were eating and drinking judgment to themselves because they were doing it so terribly wrong. But then he said, and when I get there, I'll deal with the rest of it. So you can see the Corinthian church was a mess. Now, here's what I want you to take away from all that. I could have saved you an hour. I could have just said this to you. If you belong to God, then you belong to God. That's a done deal. That's a finished fact. If Christ died for you, then Christ died for you, and your sins are utterly forgiven. And when he comes back, he's not coming back with respect to sin. He's coming back to bring his church, his bride, his body to himself. And it's not going to be coming to die again. It's coming to rule and reign again. And those are facts. Those are things that are settled in heaven. And because these things are settled, when God's people become rebellious and decide to do things their own way, God doesn't lose them, which is the common thinking. That's the thinking I was raised with. Be a good boy or God will get you. Choose God and he'll choose you, but if you rebel, he'll give up on you. He'll quit you. He'll send you to hell for one wrong thing you did. That's not at all what the Bible says. Paul's argument is God never, ever gives up on you. He never, ever loses his people. He chose those people since before the foundation of the world. He put those people in Christ. Christ died for those people and redeemed those people, therefore Paul could write that those people are glorified in the mind of God. And because God doesn't lose those people, they are still his church. Think about Corinth. Think about the mess that Corinth is. Think about how often they have to be corrected. And never once does Paul say, you're not a church. You do not belong to God. Christ did not die for you. Rather, his approach is, you are God's. Christ has died for you. Therefore, God will correct you. God will put you back on the path that he intends for you to be on. Okay, anybody in this room want to say that they've experienced correction in this lifetime? You better all raise your hands. And no correction is fun when you're going through it. The writer of Hebrews admits that. The correction isn't fun, but it's good for you. And it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness and it reestablishes the relationship with God. So communion, Lord's Supper here at GCA, it was maybe 20 years ago in my house that I read that passage and said, it can't be any other way. It has to be once a year. It has to be. Otherwise, Paul would have said, do it weekly or do it monthly or do it year.' He placed it at the annual Passover feast. So I don't think that's an arguable point, even though there are people who will argue with me. Please stop typing at this very moment. Don't argue with me. I'm firm about this. But secondarily, God knows who his people are, and he calls you to come be in communion with him, and he calls you to come remember his son, and he calls you to take care of one another as an example that you've been taught by Christ. If he's been good to you, be good to others. If he's been gracious to you, be gracious to others. If he's been kind to you and patient, then be kind to others and be patient. And don't ever think that the church is the place where your raging ego ought to have its display. The church is the place where your humility ought to be on display. Because every one of you, as was read this morning by Micah, Every one of you is supposed to look on others as better than himself. And every one of you is supposed to take Christ as your example, who, though he was equal with God, didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, didn't, didn't make of himself any great reputation, but took on the form of a servant and humbled himself all the way to the cross. That's our example. You got it? it. Yes. No, but do you got it? Yes. Yes. Do you understand what Paul was driving? At? Yes. Good. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.